Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank You for Your all-sufficient watch care over Your children, for the promises that You have given to us, that there is no darkness in which You will leave us but bring us light. There is no trial, but You will give to us the comfort and strength to conquer. There is in this world no enemy, but You will protect us and bring us in triumph with Jesus Christ to Your everlasting glory. And we pray as we seek the manna of Your Word this evening that You will come by Your Spirit and feed us. We are but infants. The crust of Your bread is at times too much for us to bear. But we pray that as our Heavenly Father, You would break open the crust and give to us the meat, and give it to us in such a way that digesting it, however bitter it sometimes is to our taste, we will discover the sweetness and the graciousness of every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. And so our cry to you, our Father, is to help us to believe your word and to believe the gospel we believe to hear it preached by Jesus Christ into our hearts, to learn to preach it to ourselves and to speak it to one another, that we may become more and more a gospel people, a people who together are a praise of our Savior in this city and to the ends of the earth. So minister to us, we pray, in all the diversity of our circumstances and needs, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Now, our studies in Romans have brought us to Romans chapter 5, and we have been pausing there a little in Romans chapter 5, and we come this evening to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, although we shall concentrate our attention this evening on the third verse. And while you're turning there, page 942 in the Pew Bible, let me encourage you, as Craig Wilkes, my colleague, has done to share as much as you possibly can in the missions conference next weekend. It ends next Lord's Day evening, and the missions committee have asked me to preach, and I do plan to preach from Romans. Indeed, I plan to preach from the whole of Romans next Sunday evening, not on the whole of Romans, but from the whole of Romans, which, uh, among other things, has some very signal and important things to say to us about the theme of our conference, which is the planting of gospel churches in other parts of the world. And uh, from no apostle could we better learn that than the Apostle Paul who planted so many churches about which the New Testament tells us a great deal. Now, we believe all of the apostles planted many churches, but we don't know very much about how they planted those churches, what their vision for church planting was, but Paul does tell us. And so, if you're looking for homework this week, it's to read through Romans This is just a very subtle way of getting you to read through Romans and note the 
things that Paul says there that you might think are particularly relevant to church planting? And of course, the correct answer is Romans chapters 1 through 16. But it's Romans chapter 5 this evening. Therefore, says Paul, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Eight months ago, when we started this study of Paul's great letter to the Romans, I think I said, and it really, I think, was our experience as we began this study that we were feeling that we were standing at the foothills of the Himalayas, or as knowing ones say, the Himalayas, that we were looking up, as it were, to the great Mount Everest of the Apostle Paul's teaching. And so far, we have been in the foothills. We have been working our way through the Apostle's teaching about our sinfulness and the judgment of God and our need and our loss of the glory of God, and therefore the exclusion of all boasting. And when we come through His proclamation of the gospel in chapter 3 and His vindication of that gospel from the Old Testament in chapter 4 to the wonderful words of chapter 5, verse 1, we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it certainly seems as though we have just begun to get to a great mountain peak. How, how wonderful this is, especially when we have felt the weight of the earlier chapters, the solemnity of our judgment before God's throne, the, the perversity of our sinfulness the fact that none is righteous, that boasting is excluded, and apart from Jesus Christ, we are spiritually dead. And we've begun to breathe a different atmosphere, an atmosphere of grace, an atmosphere permeated by the presence of Christ, an atmosphere of what Paul here calls peace. But then as we, as we take our rest there and then look up, we realize, as mountain climbers tell me, and I read in books, often happens that when you have got to the first peak, it simply gives you a better view of the peaks that are still to ascend. And Paul expresses this in very striking language. He has been telling us that we stand in this grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But then he goes on to say, you notice at the beginning of verse 3, more than that. 
We rejoice in our hope of the glory of God, and more than that. And then he will go on to say, as he works his way through this teaching, that by the end of this section in chapter 5 and verse 11, not only do we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God and rejoice, as he says in verse 3, in our sufferings, there is something even more wonderful than that. We come to rejoice in God Himself. Now, the fact that he rejoices or boasts in the hope of the glory of God is quite extraordinary. This man who has been conscious that he, with all mankind, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, hated the glory of God, exchanged the glory of God for idolatry that he should now boast in and rejoice in and triumph in the hope of the glory of God? That is surely an extraordinary thing. And yet, of course, if it really is true, then even from one point of view, somebody who might even seem to be an unbeliever could understand why a Christian would rejoice in such confidence if such confidence were well-founded. What a thing to know in this world that you are destined for the glory of God. But now you see he comes to a different order of reality altogether. The restoration of the hope of the glory of God is amazing, but it's understandable that Paul would rejoice in it. What he comes to now is even more remarkable and in some ways to an unbeliever would seem to be absolutely incredible. More than that, there is something beyond that, he says, in our Christian experience. We boast, we rejoice, he says, in verse 3, in our sufferings. Now, he's going to take one step further in verse 11, but we are here this evening in verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Nor, notice, is Paul simply being carried away by a flurry of eloquence. Those of you who ever do any public speaking or teaching or preaching, speaking of any kind, you know you can get caught up in the moment and in the wonder of what you are speaking about and lose all sense of reality just in that moment. And in the aftermath, you think to yourself, what on earth did I say? But the Apostle Paul regularly says this kind of thing. And not only regularly says this kind of thing, but lived this kind of thing out. Think of when he was in jail in Philippi, beaten black and blue, and he and his companion, what are they doing at midnight? They are rejoicing in their sufferings and singing praises to God together. So, Paul is not here being carried away by the power of his own eloquence into a world of unreality. Later on, you remember, in chapter 8, he will bring us again face to face with reality, all the trials of the Christian life. 
and tell us that one of the reasons the Christian believer is able to rejoice in his or her sufferings is because he or she knows that he or she is more than conqueror through Him who loved us. And amazingly, he says the same thing to the Philippians. He says the same thing to the Corinthians. And he says simply the same thing here as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, or as James says in James chapter 1, or as Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. The whole Bible is full of this extraordinary message of the Christian gospel, that Christian believers, the humblest and the meanest, may so experience the grace of God as to glory in their infirmities and to rejoice in their sufferings. And of course, he is not saying, despite his sufferings. Oh, yes, I'm going through all of these difficulties, but despite these difficulties, I still have something to rejoice in. No, he is saying, just as we rejoice in the hope because of the hope of the glory of God, so the Christian believer, as the gospel permeates our beings, is able even in this countercultural way to rejoice in our sufferings. So, this is heavenly medicine for the soul. This is, this is the ultimate medicine in this world for our afflictions. Thank God for human medicine and all of its advances. But even the best of human medicine cannot make you rejoice in your sufferings. But Paul, this is his testimony. The Christian believer who grasps the gospel begins to rejoice in his sufferings. And of course, the great question we all are wanting to ask him, I hope you're wanting to ask him this question, how on earth is that possible for the likes of me? And he gives us some basic education if I can put it this way, in basic education, at least when I was receiving the basic education I got, we were taught the three R's. I don't know why it was called the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know, what happened there? Something went wrong there. But when it comes to rejoicing in suffering, I want to suggest to you that we need to learn not three R's, but three P's. The first is the principle that Paul tells us we ought to learn. And it's enshrined in these words, you'll notice them here, more than that, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing. In other words, he is saying, and, and we have seen this kind of thing all over Paul in the past, he is saying part of the divine key to learning how to experience joy in the midst of your sufferings, and even because of your sufferings, is because of something you know. 
Now, if at your leisure and beyond your Romans homework you read through the Apostle Paul, you'll notice that he says this kind of thing with striking regularity. He is always wanting the Christian believers for whom he is a pastoral concern to see that there is a great key to living the Christian life lies in understanding God's ways. Or to put it in other terms, understanding the teaching of Scripture in its illustrations, in its history, in its principles, in its applications, in such a way that you're able to take all that and to apply it to the particular needs and circumstances and situations of your own life. And this is why, as you well know, when he comes to one of the great hinge points in Romans, in Romans chapter 12, he he urges the Roman Christians to understand that life transformation takes place through the renewing of the mind. And we can never hear that in our modern world too often that part of the key to growing in grace is understanding the gospel and understanding how the gospel works and understanding how God works in the life of the believer. So, what is it that we need to know? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering for the Christian is productive. Now, Paul doesn't mean that simply in an isolated way, obviously. God is behind and in that verb. Suffering, he says, produces something. And the language he's he's using here is quite strong language, the idea of, of God at work in and through our suffering, as though our suffering were the, the clay that the potter would take in his hands and shape it and mold it and keep his hands on it as the clay went around the wheel. He wants us to understand that there is a divine productivity in which the chief instrument of transformation is suffering. And this, of course, we begin to understand, some of us, in the very earliest days of our spiritual experience. Wouldn't surprise me that there are numbers of us here, and if somebody said, how were you first brought to rejoice in faith in Jesus Christ, then what you would describe would be the way in which God used suffering in your life in order to wean you away from your obsession with yourself and your obsession with this world to see your need of Jesus Christ. You would be able to say in that sense with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 71, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've been brought to keep your word. And sometimes 
You see this in very dramatic ways, people's lives, as it were, disintegrating around them and the suffering they go through. But they are able to say, as they look at it retrospectively, thank God He was working in and through my suffering to bring me to Himself. And if that's true of the beginning of the Christian life, it's so often true of the whole of the Christian life, isn't it? That one of the chief instruments of our spiritual learning and advance is the pressure, the affliction, the tribulation that God in His sovereign providence brings into our lives. Isn't that what Jesus is teaching when He speaks to His disciples about the way in which the Father is the vine dresser who comes and prunes the vine, that it may bear more fruit? He's not talking there, my friends, about winning souls. He's talking about life transformation about character transformation and the way in which the Lord does this. And actually, the word that Paul uses here for suffering is the word pressure, the way He uses pressure on our lives, brings friction into our lives in order that He might more and more transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. When I was a little boy, my industrious mother, one day a week, I've forgotten what day it was, although I shouldn't have because she did it every single week, she would say to me when I was just a little fellow, let's do the brasses. Now, I was brought up in a post-Second World War house where almost everything was made of brass. There was little silver and very little gold, but there was a lot of brass. We had brass windmills, we had brass monkeys, we had brass candlesticks. All of our doors had brass knobs on them. They had brass finger plates on them. Everything was brass. Some people live in a glass house. We lived in a brass house. <laughs> and she would go round with her little tube of brasso. Now, who thought up that name? And she would rub on this brasso onto the, the everything that was made of brass, and then it would dry on it. And then we'd march round the house again, mother and her little helper, who wasn't much more use then than he is now. And my mother would rub and rub and rub and rub on the, on the door plates, rub and rub. I was always fascinated as a little boy to put my finger on the plate and see what heat my mother could create by her strong right arm. And then do you know what we would do? For, I must have forgotten this until the middle of my Christian life. She would bend down to my height, and we'd look into the brass door plate, and if we could see our reflections, she was satisfied. Now, that's what Paul's saying. That's what God is doing. God is working through suffering. 
and we are lost if we don't know that. Now, listen, you don't know, you don't need to know exactly what God is doing. All you need to know is that you can rest in this principle that not one single stroke of the vine dresser's pruning knife will ever be wasted, and eternity will declare it. Don't you think eternity will be rather interesting? Endlessly interesting to sit down with those you've known and watched go through suffering of all kinds and, and be able to go up to them and, and say to them, has the Lord Jesus explained it yet to you in detail what He was really doing in your life and through your life? So, this is the first principle we need to know that God is using our suffering. The second P is this. If the principle is learning to know, to understand that God is purposely working, the second P we need to grasp is that He characteristically works according to a pattern. So, there's a principle to learn, and there's a pattern to experience, and Paul gives us an outline of it here. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, there he's saying there is God's characteristic pattern. He works through suffering, first of all, to produce endurance, to produce that ability, as his language suggests, to be able to keep standing when the pressure is placed upon you, to be able to, to take the weight, to be able to stand firm and not be crushed by the pressure. That's the thing. Endurance like these great weightlifters I love to watch whenever the Olympic Games comes round with their, with their barbells that bend as they lift them up, these, these men who seem to be square, and as, they, as the whole thing quakes and the whole room seems to quake because of the way in which they have gone through the stresses of their training the pressures of their training, the pain of their training. When it comes to the real test, they're able to take the strain without wavering. And you see, it's the pressure that has produced that. You can't learn to endure in the Christian life if your Christian life is surrounded by cotton wool. That can never produce endurance. It's only when we are exposed to those things that cross our own designs for our life or that bring pain into our life or present challenges to our life. It's only that that gives us the adequate spiritual exercise for our lives to grow strong and for us to be able to endure. And then do you notice what he says, that suffering produces 
endurance, pressure produces strength, and endurance produces character. Endurance produces what Paul calls testedness, or as our translations express it, character. It's the kind of idea that Paul uses when he writes about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2 and says, I have absolutely nobody like him. Think of it. Think of the Christians the apostle Paul knew. And about this one young man, he says, I have absolutely nobody like him. And he says, you know Timothy's proven worth. Now, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the way in which the pressures that God brings to bear upon our lives in His providence produce the thing that may be the greatest need in the evangelical church today, that is character. Character. Because you and I well understand we're living in a world that is calculated not to produce character. And in all the moral disarray of the Western world, this is perhaps the greatest issue that needs to be faced. I I was shown on the BBC website this week, so it was the British Broadcasting Corporation website couldn't possibly be more authentic or reliable than the British Broadcasting Corporation website. Listen to this. Dr. Carol Craig, who is the chief executive officer, she's a psychologist, she's the chief executive officer of, listen to this, the Center for Confidence and Well-Being. I think it's in Scotland. the Center for Confidence and Well-Being. I think the next time I go back to Scotland, I need to inquire. I could do with a really good dose of confidence and well-being. And she's been giving a lecture to principal teachers in the schools in the United Kingdom because you know the problem they're facing? The parents are complaining that the little ones are being marked fail when they actually fail. (laughs) The poor little fellows are being told that you don't spell the words that way. Now, this is a British psychologist. This is the BBC website. This is not some evangelical crackpot. This is a, as far as I know, purely secular organization, probably government-funded, and it's concerned as politicians actually are, the best of them, desperately concerned about what's happening to our young people. And do you know what she's saying? If she had read Christopher Lash's book 30 years ago, she might have been able to say it 30 years ago, we're producing a generation of narcissists 
without any moral fiber or character because nobody ever places pressure on their lives and says, no, that's wrong. Learn to do it right. And the result is that on the therapist's doormat are washed up the flotsam and jetsam of a failed society with people saying, I have a problem. Fix it for me. And perhaps the greatest tragedy is, as I was driving down to the Ligonier Conference, I think twice south of Jacksonville, I saw a great big poster at the side of the road, Jesus can fix your problems. Are you lonely? Are you depressed? Are you struggling? Jesus can fix your problems. My dear friends, the Jesus Paul knew gave him more problems. He had very few problems of which he knew before he became a Christian, except these wretched Christians. And from the very day he bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ brought problem after problem after problem after problem to him because he was utterly determined that this man would be a man of sterling character, glowing character for Jesus Christ. You see how countercultural all this is in the time in, in which we live. Lash was right. We've developed a culture of narcissism, and God help us, we've now brought it into the Christian church and it's all over I-95 driving south that Jesus can fix your problems and give you a life relatively free of problems, and you can see it any night on the television set. But the thing it's not doing is producing mighty Christian character of young men and women who will die for Jesus Christ. And you see, it's only when that happens that a third thing happens. Pressure produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And then, surprise, surprise, because we've been here before, character produces hope. Hope of what? Hope of the glory of God. Now, you see, these two things go together. In a narcissistic culture, what I want is comfort for my problems now, and everything else is utterly irrelevant, but my present satisfaction and my present solution. And heaven can go to hell. But when God works in His children steadily and produces endurance, and endurance produces character, the thing that begins to emerge is a quiet, calm certainty that glory will be mine. Now, how does that calm certainty come? Because you see the Christian begins to understand that Jesus 
is making him more and more like himself and preparing him or her for glory. You've three score years and ten here, perhaps a few more, perhaps a century. But you see, if the scriptural teaching is correct, that what I will be in all eternity is related to the way in which I've used these threescore years and ten. In this short span, you and I are fixing something that will last forever. And the real question is, how are you doing your arithmetic? Are you living to solve your short-term problems here indifferent to the world to come? Are you living for the world to come? And the only thing that really matters, and as C.S. Lewis, excuse me, quoting him again, he's not my favorite theologian, but he sure could put some things brilliantly well, says, the people who have made most lasting impact upon this world have been those whose minds and hearts have been fixed on the world to come. And you see, that's what God is doing. Do you find this whenever you go through any pressure, any suffering? It can be, can be minor, it can be major. That you realize one of the things God is doing to you is He's saying, my child, now you've got super glue on your hands with respect to this world, and you've counted these things as vitally important, and they're relatively speaking insignificant, so open your hands and hold on exclusively to me. Or he begins, to, he begins to poke away into your sinfulness, and he brings it to the surface. I always find this when I feel sick, which isn't too often, thankfully. I always feel as though my sins, not my sickness, but my sins are being brought to the surface, and I can't bear it when somebody says to me, Sinclair, you're just sick. I say, I know I'm sick, but I need the Lord to deal with these sins and to help me deal with my sins and to produce a different kind of character in me that will be strong for Him. That's the purpose that He has in it all. And that's why when you meet men and women, as we love to meet men and women who have been through much, oh, what character, oh, what character is in them. And this is what he's saying. He's saying this character produces hope, like Job's hope. I know the way he takes and I will come forth as pure gold. Don't you want to be pure gold like that? Now, here's the thing. Go back to verse 1. He says, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've obtained access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, you see what he's saying there. He's saying when you understand the gospel, when you think the gospel through, you realize that justification by grace 
gives you this great guarantee and hope of the glory of God. Now, just hold that line of thought, will you? Just hold that line of thought for a moment, and then look down at the next line of thought. He says, our sufferings produce endurance, and our endurance produces hope of glory. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you understand that what God does in the gospel isn't just something that flies above your head as a great idea, justification by grace, peace with God, hope of glory. No, it goes right through your being. Pressure, suffering, endurance, character, hope of glory. It's almost as though God is using a pincer movement on the Christian who understands the gospel and says, I am going to bring into your mind such a sense of the privilege of the glory of God that awaits you that your mind will almost burst in astonishment. And I'm going to work in you patiently into your life so that what I produce in you will produce a burst of astonishment in those who once knew what you once were. Isn't that amazing? Well, if that's true, it brings us to the third P. And this, honestly, will take us just a minute. The principle that we need to learn, the pattern that we will experience, the priorities that we need to learn to set. One of the Puritans said, actually probably about twenty of them said this, but one of them at least said, affliction can cut a man's meat or it can cut a man's throat. It can build you or it can break you. So how am I going to be sure that it's going to build me rather than break me? Well, of course, by recognizing that God has a different set of priorities from my set of priorities. You'd better believe it. He has a different set of priorities from my set of priorities. He has only one priority, only one priority. In your life, the end of the day, to make you like Jesus. One might even dare to say everything else that's part of His purpose will take care of itself so long as He can make you like Jesus. Now, do you think that a sinner like you or me, can be made like Jesus without tasting at least a little of the pressure that Jesus tasted? Do you think that if affliction and pressure and suffering were the instruments that 
the heavenly Father used in the life of His dear Son to make Him in our humanity what He became, that lesser instruments will do for me, for you. It cannot be. And so, we need to set our heart on this priority. We're living in a world where people want their problems solved. God is not all that interested in solving my problems. God is absolutely committed to making me like Jesus, whatever my problems may be. And when I yield to that priority, then His transforming grace becomes sweet to me rather than bitter. I cease to seek short-term satisfaction, and I begin to seek long-term transformation. I cease to be content with the temporal and desire to live for the eternal. That's why I like these words of C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps you understand what He is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one you thought of. He's running up a wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it Himself, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And so, this is a great lesson for us to learn, especially those of us who suffer, not least those of us who suffer secretly and privately, a multitude of different ways. We need to know that whatever the pressures that there are upon our lives, that they're not out of God's control, but He's using them and designs to use them to transform me from what I am to what He wants to make me. And under that pressure, I can grow strong. Under that pressure, Christian character can be formed. And under that pressure, a Christ-likeness that nothing in all the world can imitate will be produced as I yield to the pattern of my heavenly Father. What a consolation the saints have found in that and you and I need to find in it also. Heavenly Father,
Thank you again for your word and for its wisdom and power. Thank you for its searching truth. Forgive us, our Father, that the lenses through which we so often view our own lives have been prescribed and grounded by the world rather than by the Word. Forgive us in the church of Your beloved Son, which He died to purchase, that we have become so obsessed with this world and with ourselves and with tidy living and with the accomplishment of our little petty ambitions and with our own positions, and have ceased in so many places to be gymnasiums of the soul and hospitals of the sick and workplaces where men and women, boys and girls, are transformed by the power of Your Word and by the sheer holiness of the Christian fellowship. We cry out to You tonight, O God, to restore these things to our lives, that we may be strong and faithful as we seek to serve You. And this we pray for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen.